In my mind, I was trying to count down when that bell was going to ring so we could count down. Ten, nine, eight, seven. You wouldn't like that idea. <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Welcome to our Bible class on the first day of the year. Happy New Year to everyone. I'm glad that you made it. And if folks are joining us online, Happy New Year to you, too. Uh, we're glad that, glad that you made it in this year. You have all now officially beat your personal record for a number of times around the sun. And they get to start a new year uh, this year, too. So we ask for God's blessings on this year. Uh, this particular class that we're doing here on Sunday mornings is called Jesus in the World in Which He Lived, or Jesus in Israel. And the idea is for us to uh, pause to take a look at some of the words, some of the cultural behaviors, practices of people in the first century, so that when you run across certain passages or certain events in Scripture, you can see and hear those events the same way that the very first witnesses saw them, and that you can read these passages and, and hear them the very uh, same way that the first century church heard them, so that you can more perfectly apply those 2,000 years later in your own time and in your own culture, having heard and seen what do these things really mean? There's a, there's a tendency, the further you get away from some of these events or some of the original writing, there's a tendency to feel like you have the right or the ability to just apply a verse however you want. you know, And, uh, and that can be dangerous. And so this particular class is just a way to remind us, here's what some of these words mean. Here's what some of these concepts mean. And Scott Geyer's teaching this class, but he was gone last week and this week, and so he asked if I would cover a couple weeks. Last week, we talked about what the word gift means in the New Testament. And today, we're going to talk about the word miracles. And so if you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 3. No, let's start in 2. Acts chapter 2. And let's talk about what does this word miracle mean when you run into it in scripture or in conversation or in a setting in which you're talking about one of the amazing, powerful events that you read, especially in the New Testament. <clears throat> so Acts chapter 2, let me just set the scene for you. Uh, Jesus has died, been buried, rose again, and it's several weeks later on Pentecost when God's spirit is given to his people. And this was all predicted from years before. That's not what this class is about, but it was an amazing day when God's spirit is actually placed in people and they begin to speak in tongues. It's uh, best we can tell on that day what that meant was that the disciples, these people who had followed Jesus now for three years, were able to stand up in front of this crowd of people who had gathered in Jerusalem from all over the world, and they were able to, to speak to them, and it didn't matter which country a person came from or what language they spoke, they heard the message perfectly translated for them. And, and that was God's speaking through his disciples that day. So the, what you're about to hear is part of that sermon that was given. It's kind of fun to think about here 2,000 years later. You get to hear this as if it were spoken in English <laughs> because it's been translated for you, not necessarily miraculously on that day. There's an old joke in translation that uh, what they got to hear by inspiration, you now have to hear with perspiration, meaning that somebody had to do a, hard, a lot of hard work translating what this means. But what you're about to hear is what Peter said 
when he was standing there in front of the people there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and he teaches them about Jesus. And he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Pay attention or keep your finger on that verse. So he was attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed this man uh, by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So here's what I'd like you to pay attention to first are these three words, mighty works, wonders, and signs. That's in my translation. Some of you may have other translations. What are the, the three words that are used in your translation? Good. So miracles, wonders, and signs. So there we get the word miracle, which here they call mighty works. Does anybody have another translation? Are those the words that you see too? Notice how the translators are reaching. This would have originally been written in Greek by a physician named Luke who's passing this history on. And the words he used there are going to be three Greek words. But the translators are trying to help you understand. This is what those words mean. Mighty works or miracles, wonders, signs. Uh, These are the words that are used in the New Testament for the word miracle or a powerful act or a sign. Now, there's a reason that we're told that Jesus performed miracles. And do you see what the reason was here? If if you were to, to be asked, why did Jesus heal anyone? Why did he turn water to wine? Why did he feed? To do what? To to show who he was. Yeah, and you hear Peter using that word here. He was, my version says, attested to you. Do your version say something else? Some of you have the NIV. Do you have the accredited to you? Some will say accredited. Yeah, the, the word there, what that means is that this was Jesus' ID card. You, you knew that Jesus was who all the prophets said he was, meaning the Messiah, the, the, the Son of God who would be sitting at his right hand. This is his ID card, that he is able to do something that is powerful and mighty. Now, we're not going to spend time on this today, but I want you to notice that uh, Jesus did not come and perform magic tricks. In the first century, if we were having this class, we would talk about how, did you guys see that Jesus was not practicing black magic here? We're not going to do that today. Uh, But he, when they first heard or saw what Jesus did, in their mind, this was his calling card. This was his ID card. John makes the same point in John chapter 20, towards the end of, so John has written an entire book. And in this book, he has told us about a series of things that Jesus did. And these are amazing things that he did. And at the end of of listing all of these things that Jesus was able to do, John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So that book he's talking about is the Gospel of John. So John's written a story telling you all these things Jesus did. And then he says, you realize Jesus did a lot of other things too. And notice what he says, that Jesus did many other signs. 
And then verse 31, but these, these what? These signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why did Jesus perform miracles? That was his ID card. So that you would see what he did and know for sure who he was. And that by believing, you have a connection with real life in his name. So the point of the miracle is not just to be amazed, go home after the show and say, wow, that was amazing what Jesus just did. The idea is you say, here's the one who we have been waiting for all our lives and who restores life. That's the purpose of the miracles. Well, what were those miracles? Well, here's a list of John. We don't have time to go through each one of the Gospels, but remember there are four different accounts of Jesus' life and teaching, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the Gospel of John. So let's just jump into John and make a list of the events that John tells us about. And this is in order. If you want to mark this or in your Bible, flip through real quick and you can find these. In John chapter 2, Jesus changes water into wine. In John chapter 4, he heals a boy who's near death. In John chapter 5, There's a list for those of you who like to take notes. John chapter 5, he heals a paralyzed man. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 men, not including the women and children. In John chapter 6 later, we see Jesus walking on water. In John chapter 9, he restores the sight of a man who was born blind. In John chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And then the pinnacle miracle uh, in John chapter 20, Jesus is resurrected from the dead. I'm going to let you look at that list. And again, if you were in the first century, I would say, notice on that list of the things that Jesus did, you don't see here magic tricks. This isn't where Jesus took off the magic ring and he held it over the people and something amazing happens. It's not that a winged horse flies down and he amounts Pegasus and rides up close enough to the sun to absorb its energy and come down and restore light. To be. That's, that's what you would catch in mythology or in magic. Instead, you catch here Jesus doing something, and if you have eyes to see it, you'll recognize this isn't the first time. So let's talk about the word miracle. The uh, <clears throat> word miracle, if we were to define it, this is the Cambridge Dictionary, they give us three definitions. I'm going to give you the definitions. I want you to try to think of maybe sentences or ways that we use the word miracle in one of these uh, senses. So miracle could mean an unusual and mysterious event that is thought to have been caused by God or a God because it does not follow the usual laws of nature. That's the first definition. Second by using the term miracle, we could mean today just a lucky event that is surprising and unexpected. Or number three, a miracle is an excellent achievement in a particular area of study. So that's how we use the word miracle today. That's what it means. Can you think of that? Let's just kind of throw out a sentence in which you would use the word miracle. Yeah, yeah. And it's okay. You don't have to put incorrect use because we'll see that you can't lower that definition over scripture and say that's what he meant here. But yeah, we say it. Wow, the miracle of childbirth. Wow, it's amazing. What are other ways we use the word miracle? 
the miracle of <clears throat> come on. Oh yeah, exactly. I saw this in the news yesterday. Barring a miracle, I forget who it was, the Browns or one of the NFL teams. Barring a miracle, the NFL team will not make it through the playoffs this year. <laughs> so, barring a miracle, so it would take a miracle for something big to happen. How else? Yeah. So court says that if I didn't get hit by a vehicle, you know, sliding through the intersection today, it could very well happen. I would pause before going through any intersection today. Then, wow, it's a miracle. Yeah. And we're referring to miracle there as a fortuitous chance event in which something led to a good outcome for us. Maybe not everybody else in the intersection, but yeah. Can you think of other uses? You ever heard of the miracle of technology? Due to the miracle of technology, we are able to live stream today's class all over the world. And we talk about this, maybe the, the, the feat that is perfect and huge and large being a miracle. Do we ever, do we ever seek miracles in this room? We pray, yeah. And have you ever heard somebody use the word miracle in the sense of an answered prayer? Hey, we prayed to God for such and such to happen, and he answered our prayer, granted us a miracle. You know, and so we use miracle in that. These are the ways that we use the term miracle today. What I want you to catch is that of, of those words that we saw used in Acts, and what John refers to at the end of John chapter 20, those, those are not the definitions that are on the minds of people when they read these events for the first time. When you talked about wondrous powers or signs. The word there in Greek would be dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite. And he said, Jesus did many things that were dynamite. They were powerful, you know, today. Or when John uses the word simeon, which is the word for sign, he's saying this was just his ID card. This was a, uh, a pay attention moment. And so these words, they didn't necessarily mean what we tend to have allowed them to become. But let's see if we can feel and hear exactly what they meant then. First, I want to address two miraculous mistakes, which are the mistakes we make when we go back into Scripture trying to take our definition, our use of miracles. And then when we see that word pop up in Scripture or something that sounds like that word, we uh, oftentimes fall for these two mistakes. The first is the mistake that miracles were believed by these people so easily because they were ignorant of modern science. This is what has been called chronological snobbery or generational egotism, where because in our day we are so scientifically advanced, uh, we understand where wine really comes from. We know if you're going to feed 5,000 people, we know where bread comes from. We know you know, if you're going to stay above water, it has to be in the middle of winter and the water's frozen. You know, we know how these things work. But they didn't know that back then. Those poor, ignorant people, they just didn't know how the world worked. And there's a tendency for us to do that, even if we don't know that we're doing that, and we read, and especially in conversation, in our culture, in a materialistic world in which 
there is the common belief, this is the air that you breathe, the culture you live in, believes that the only thing that exists is what you can see or hear or taste or touch or measure. And to grow up in that type of culture and then to hear that a man walks onto the scene, puts his hand with some mud on a a man's eyes, and he opens his eyes and can see. It sounds fanciful. It sounds sounds like something you would read in a fairy tale. Um, And there's a tendency to say, well, they believe that. They swallowed that back then because they didn't have the same science class I had. They didn't take the same biology class. They didn't have access to the Internet. They didn't have the great science that we have. But, as I hope you'll see, that's a miraculous mistake. Second miraculous mistake is that there's a tendency to believe that miracles are a violation of the laws of nature or the laws of science. This is the way that we tend to use miracle today, that if a miracle occurred, that would not have been an expected event if I were a scientist who was keeping the data and running the experiment, an outcome that is totally not expected uh, would, uh, would mean that there's something wrong with my experiment. Or it would tell you somebody's monkeyed with my experiment. <laughs> right? uh, but there's a tendency to believe that the people back then um, believed these things first because they were ignorant of modern science. And then the second miraculous mistake is the belief that miracles are a violation of the laws of nature. That Jesus somehow, if the miracle occurred, he had to take all of the laws of nature and suspend them for the moment. In other words, you're being asked to suspend your belief in order to believe what Jesus did. And that's a miraculous mistake. Let me show you why. First, let me take you back to the first century and take you to uh, a few people that you may recognize if you lived in this period of time. The first is Hero of Alexandria. This is a cool, oh, you can't see it uh, too well there on the right, but Hero of Alexandria is considered one of, there's actually two of them, but one of the first inventors of the steam engine. So someday, living here in Anchorage, you may see the jets take off out here. You know, they take off, fly straight up into the sky and do their maneuvers. You realize the jet engine is using, you know, the principles of, well, I won't get into that, the the forces of thrust and lift and drag and all of that. But what makes the jet go forward is this principle that if you send a force backwards, the plane goes forward. That's a jet engine. That's based on the development earlier than that of the steam engine. And do you realize the very first principles of the steam engine were developed by Hero of Alexandria? And notice that date. About the same time, actually this would have been about 30 years before John was actually writing down these events, Hero of Alexandria was coming up with this toy which can be remade even today. Our daughter made one of these in science class called Hero, Hero Steam Engine and showed that if you boil the water inside the canister, the force of that heated air will shoot out you know, one direction. And if you angle that force, you can, of course, create the effect that the item will go the opposite direction. Right? For every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. This is long before Newton and others. But uh, Hero was working on this. I show you that just to show you that Yes, it's amazing to watch a jet engine, you know, take off. And, I mean, one of these jets do their takeoff. But much more impressive is if you were able to go back to that moment where a man of genius first discovered these principles that were already there and figured out a way to apply them. And now you appreciate all of their work. But that was in 60 AD. How about this guy? 
Theophrastus. Did that pop up? No, this is Ptolemy. We've got to go to Ptolemy next. Ptolemy, I have this book at home. You'll notice that this is written in English. Originally, these, this uh, geometric uh, proof would have been written in Greek. <clears throat> but you'll notice, looking at that, I won't spend a lot of time here going through the geometric proof because I can't say I totally understand it myself. But notice that this is written by a person of genius about AD 100. So about the time that these first scriptures were being kind of pulled together and circulating among the churches. You also had these scientific books that were being copied and published and passed around in which people like Ptolemy are figuring out the rotation of the planets and where they are in space and where our solar system is in the greater universe. And they're figuring that out using geometry, which is the same geometry that you had to learn in high school and put into practice, but that was being talked about back then. Now, one of my favorite is Theophrastus. I throw this in for all of you who are gardeners and uh, who enjoy bringing forth great food from the earth. I don't know if you recognize, do you recognize Theophrastus? He was the, considered the father of botany. Uh, By the way, those of you who are Dr. Seuss fans will know that when Theodore Giesel the original Dr. Seuss was writing his books. This is the actual name that he gave to Dr. Seuss. Uh, Dr. Seuss was Theophrastus. I guess Dr. Seuss must have been a, or Theodore Giesel must have been a bit of a botanist. But the point is that Theophrastus is the one who worked out how plants reproduced and how you could cultivate plants. Now, they knew how to do it before. They only knew how to grow plants. But he's the one that worked out that, hey, these things develop in certain lines and you can't take barley and somehow cultivate it over time into wheat and so long before we knew that there was a genetic component here he was able to work out the uh, specifics of what caused barley to become barley (laughs) and wheat to become more wheat and how that worked out just by observation but this was considered the definitive work well into the middle ages because he sorted out how that worked. And I bet you recognize this guy. In our family, he's known as one of the three morons we call uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. If you say those three names in our house, somebody will go, morons. (laughs) No, they weren't morons. They were people of genius. Uh, But I ran across this last night, and I thought this was interesting. Aristotle, in one of his sort of side works that most people don't really know about, but they certainly knew throughout the Middle Ages up until what we would call the modern Enlightenment era of modern science. Uh, this was held as one of the main books of biology. Was his book on the generation of animals? Generation there, not meaning, you know, father son. Well, I guess it did mean that generation. It's meaning how do animals get here? If you if you have, uh, uh, you know, two dogs, how do you get more dogs? If you have birds, how do you get more birds? And he found that different animals, it seemed to happen in kind of different ways. Some laid eggs, some had a uterus like humans do, some uh, it seemed to be more plant-like, and so he was able to differentiate. So anyway, he was doing a lot of work in biology, but he happens to talk about how fish come to be. Look, at this is what Aristotle's writing, 380 years before Christ walked the earth. The same thing occurs in the generation of oviparous fishes, <clears throat> I think that means fishes who lay eggs. When the female fish has laid her eggs, the male sprinkles his milt over them. The eggs, which it touches, then become fertile. But the others are infertile, which seems to imply that the contribution which the male makes to the young has to do not with the bulk of the milt, 
but with specific character. There's something in that melt that connects with the egg and makes more fish. Now, most of you would say, who have been fishing and you recognize the process, would say, yeah, that's what happens. But notice this is 384 years before Christ was here. They had already sorted out, not just that, hey, fish each year seem to come back in greater bulk. The fishermen recognized there's a connection, and if you're going to get more fish, you need to start with two fish. And one of those has to be a male and one a female. And then they have to contribute something, both of them, to this egg, which makes many more, many more fish. Well, we could get carried away here, but let me show you two more. One of my favorite things from the ancient world is the anti-kythera mechanism. This was 80 BC, so about 80 years before Christ. Uh, They found this in a shipwreck off of this island, uh, anti-kythera, in Greece, and they found this box. And in this box, they found this geared mechanism. And then using, this was found about 120 years ago, but using the modern technology starting in the 80s and later, they were able to use... Uh, x-ray technology to basically take it apart and they found this was a geared mechanism which we now think is one of the first if not the first analog computer I'm just going to let that sink in all of you in your pocket right now probably have a phone that does an incredible number of calculations and with that you can predict even what day of the uh, week next year New Year's will fall on I mean you can look ahead and see that but do you realize the ability to look ahead and make predictions and so forth based on what has happened in the past is, is a part of what a computer does. That's what this machine did. This machine was very complex, and they were able to dial in where the planets were right now and predict in four years where all the planets would be. They could predict the next eclipse, just like you can do if you want to get on the Internet and find the next eclipse. They could do that with this machine. They could predict when the next uh, four years would pass for the next Olympic Games. That was somehow, you know, at least in the instruction manual they found uh, on this, it, it said they could look up when the next Olympic Games was. My point in showing you this is that it, it seems like you live in really modern times when out of your pocket you can pull this little box and do these calculations and it do amazing things. I want you to see that 80 years B.C., uh, this technology was there. It was, it was known. And there were also, when it comes to miracles, no shortage of skeptics. So there's a, a statesman, a famous Roman senator named Cicero, who was also a bit of a philosopher. I don't know if you can read this. Let me read you the quote. <clears throat> this was from uh, probably 50 or 60 years B.C., so about the time you, know, that you see a lot of these events occurring. He stood up in the Senate and said, For nothing can happen without a cause. Nothing happens that cannot happen. I'm going to pause there just to see. Do you agree with that? Nothing can happen that cannot happen. It didn't take a man of genius to figure that out. And when what was capable of happening has happened, it may not be interpreted as a miracle. So you see how that very definition that you throw around today, that a miracle is an unanticipated event, something that nobody would have expected to happen, that is a miracle. And Cicero says, no, if it was capable of happening and it happened, you don't call that a miracle. So he's fighting against that. Consequently, there are no miracles. We therefore draw this conclusion, what was incapable of happening never happened. And what was capable of happening is not a miracle. 
I just throw that out to show you this, what is that, somewhere 50 to 100 years before Christ, they had already defined what you now use as your primary definition of miracle. And so the, the idea that a miracle is just a chance happening or that it violates the laws of science, uh, that definition had already been dismissed over 2,000 years ago. And so when a skeptic throws that around today, you know that they're just quoting, though they probably don't know it, not something they learned in their college courses or something that we, any of us would have learned in our science classes. They're quoting Cicero from 2,000 years ago. My point this morning, the reason we go through this, is just to show you that when you run across events in the New Testament that appear and sometimes are described, depending on the translator, as miraculous, that the scriptural writers are not using this definition of something that cannot happen. They use words like a show of power or sign or something maybe unexpected, but they will never use a definition of something that could not happen. And none of the miracles of Jesus would be described as a suspension of the laws of nature or the laws of science. Well, what were they? Well, think through this. Most, uh, the most documented of miracles is the feeding of the 5,000. So in all four Gospels, you read this event. You might remember how the, the event played out. Jesus is with the disciples. They're up around Galilee. There's this huge crowd of people that have come to him. They've been with Jesus all day. And Jesus says, wow, these people are really hungry. Let's send them home, <clears throat> get them something to eat. It's too far for them to get anything to eat. The disciples recognize the dilemma that's brewing is if you put on a... Uh, a, a a seminar, you really need to figure out how you're going to feed the people. And so they, nobody thought ahead about how we're going to feed these folks. And so Jesus puts them to the test and says, well, you feed them. And the disciples say, you know, you realize how much money that would take? We don't, there's no way that we would be able to feed this number of people. And Jesus says, well, what, what do you have? And do you remember what they did have? It was five loaves of what we think would probably barley, uh, barley bread, and two fish. And with those two fish, in each account, we're told that Jesus took, he blessed the meal, and then with that, he served 5,000 men, not including the women and children. Now, what was going on there? What John wants you to catch by calling that a sign is not that Jesus did something magic or miraculous. This isn't a fairy tale. This is not a myth that is supposed to teach some larger story. John is wanting you to see that God, in a small way, in a way that you can see, is doing what he's been doing all along. Uh, you know, all of you know how to make bread, at least at a basic level. Uh, last night we had apple pie for New Year's Eve. Uh, my daughter Ada, she walks into the kitchen. Somebody requested apple pie, probably all of us. So she walks into the kitchen, and it took an hour or so, but within an hour or so, she had laid out the pastry in the dish with all the apples cut up and spiced, and the rest of the family of sous chefs jumped in to help out you know, with making this thing. And then after a few hours, out comes this great-smelling apple pie. And I walked in at the time she was rolling out the pastry, and I said, well, where's your recipe? And she goes, you don't need a recipe for this. So somebody walks into your kitchen and just whips out an apple pie. 
that tells you two things. Somebody knows the recipe, and somebody's probably done this before, especially when you get the apple pie and the very baker says, this is the best crust I've ever made. <laughs> you know, Our daughter Audrey makes bread. She does the same thing. She'll walk into the kitchen. You just see her whip out a bowl, throw in some flour, salt, <clears throat> maybe a little bit of yeast. I don't know, or use your own yeast, but then she'll roll it and and let it rise, and I'm probably not even describing it correctly, but then a few hours, bread comes out, and there's no recipe sitting out. You can know two things if that happens. The two things you can know for sure is that if somebody comes into your kitchen and does that, number one, they know the recipe, and number two, they've probably done this before. If you understand that, then you catch what you are meant to catch when in John chapter 6, you read John's description of Jesus walking into the kitchen and taking the ingredients and with those ingredients he makes food for everyone to eat now you know where the the barley comes from right if you're going to make bread you need some type of grain and uh, this goes back even Aristotle I mean he could describe this even Theophrastus could tell us (laughs) that uh, you need barley which comes from a barley stalk And every little bit of barley, every little seed of barley or piece of grain comes from one of those stalks on which there's hundreds of, you know, little seeds of grain. Well, where did all those seeds come from? Well, they came from a seed from a previous stalk that had fallen and then that grew into that plant. Well, where did that plant come from? It came from barley from before. And you could backtrack, Theophrastus would say, all the way back to the beginning of time and see where the very first barley was dropped into the world came into the world and that is how God feeds the entire world by taking a little bit of grain and dividing it to feed the entire world and Aristotle would say that's the same thing that happens with fish we figured it out in order to feed the world you need two fish (laughs) One a male fish, one a female fish, and you combine what they each have to contribute, and then you get hundreds of fish. Fish to feed everyone. And if you were to backtrack over time through, now we would say, the genetics of all those fish, you realize that all fish come from prior fish. (laughs) And those fish came from fish before them. And that is how, from the beginning of time, from that very first moment when God put fish into the sea, that's how God's been feeding the whole world is by taking fish and making more fish. I hope you see the point, is that when you read this event of Jesus feeding the 5,000, what you are meant to see is God doing in a small way that you can see and grasp what he's really been doing, if you had the ability to step back, what he's been doing all along. The idea is that with your magnifying glass, you come down and look at the event. You read the event. But then you have the courage to bring your magnifying glass back and see what God is doing in the, in the whole world. Now, if you go back through all of the miracles that Jesus did, if you go through and look at all of these signs that he shows, you see that's the common pattern. Is that when Jesus uh, causes a paralyzed man to walk, he's using the same technology... <laughs> the same principles, the same biological principles that were used in you during your first year of life. You realize what had to happen then was muscles had to grow and lengthen. You had nerves that weren't 
really perfectly coordinated at the time that had to fully myelinate. That's why you were wobbly so much at first. And then your brain had to be mapped to know which wire goes where in your body so that you can move. That's how all of us learn to stand up and walk. And Jesus is able to come on the scene and you see him do in a moment what he's done for the whole world all along, allowing us to walk. Same thing with healing, uh, giving people the ability to see. Now, some of these events are signs of what will happen with you in the future, not necessarily what has happened with you so far. Lazarus is a good example of that. Not all of us get to come walking out of the grave right away uh, or within the first four days, but it's a sign there that this is how God brings life into, into the world. Well, that's the point. And here's what I really wanted you to catch today is that in the ancient world, a miracle, or what is used, when I use that word miracle, when when your translator throws that word miracle into scripture, in the ancient world, a miracle was a show of power, or what you'll see used throughout, especially the writings of John. It was a sign that a person has mastery over the laws of nature. The point is this. When you read about one of these incredible events, You are not being asked to suspend belief. It's quite the opposite. You're being asked to say, or you're being asked to open your eyes, to suspend your disbelief and recognize that this this is him. This is the one through whom the entire creation came into being, and he is the one that you are invited to to follow. The, uh, and that's why John concludes here by saying, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And now do you hear the weight of that passage? Maybe more than you've ever heard it before. Well, we still have time here at the end, uh, but I wanted to pause and say, what are, your, what are your reflections on some of these comments, some of the things that you've seen, or what are your questions regarding uh, miracles? Yes, Katie. Okay, great question. Kay has a comment. She says, uh, if I could just summarize what you're saying, which is a powerful note, is that when we look back in time and we make these mutually contradictory statements that, hey, you, you can't not know the laws of nature and then complain that you didn't know the laws of nature or something like that, the point that was coming out of what you were saying that was really powerful is that uh, when you go back to this period of time, the people did not believe these things had happened because they didn't know how things normally work. As I showed you from the science that was available at the time, and not that it was known in that detail at every level, but people had a general sense of the way the world really worked. 
the reason that they were so amazed by Jesus was not because they were ignorant of the laws of nature. It's because they knew how the world worked. And they recognized, here's somebody who's come on the scene who knows the recipe of the elements and is able to coordinate and manipulate those to some effect. The second question Katie asked, which is uh, an interesting one, is what if the little boy only had one fish? Would Jesus still have been able to make you know, fish for everyone? And the answer to that, of course, is yes, of course he could. Uh, and that's a speculating. I don't know. That's not what happened. We're just told there were two fish. But it is interesting that in the event, we're given basically a handful of ingredients to make bread and exactly what's needed to make more fish. And for those who have eyes to see it, which they clearly did, they would recognize, oh, this is how the Creator's done that from the beginning. Yes. Yeah. Right, and that's such a great point. The point there being that when Jesus, after this, you know, he ends up on the sea, he calms the storm, uh, and we're told the winds and the waves obey him. Uh, that's not a fanciful statement. It's not a statement that you would read in a fairy tale. It's not that the wind and the waves were personified gods that he had control over. What it's saying is he knew how the elements worked and had the ability to manipulate, if you will, or show power over those elements to the effect that was needed at the time. And that's why one of the main words that's used that gets translated miracle in the New Testament is this word dunamis. It's just a show of power. He had mastery. Maybe that's the right way to say that. Showed mastery over these elements. Jerry. That's right. Yeah, Jerry makes a good point that people today would not believe it because they don't recognize what God has done. Uh, and there's a phrase, C.S. Lewis actually uses this beautiful phrase where he says, any of the miracles that you read in the scripture, Old Testament or New Testament, is God writing with little letters, what he writes with big letters all the time, much too big for most of us to see. And, and you make that point, that point really well. Other thoughts? Let me make a quick comment about Old Testament uh, and the miracles you might recognize. In fact, the miracles that Jerry's referring to are when Moses was before Pharaoh and was having to show this is the word of God. There's a series of signs. These aren't, I mean, we would describe them as miraculous events. But again, let's not use the modern connotation of that word when we talk about the skies turning dark or the river turning to blood or the gnats or the frogs or the boils or, you know, all of those Plagues. let's recognize that that was a conflict of powers. Because you remember the Egyptian magicians were able to do some of the same thing. And what you see happening in that event is a side-by-side comparison of God's show of power, control over the elements, next to, in the ancient world, what had become forms of black magic, 
which were very much trying to create things that looked wondrous and miraculous in order to either appease the gods or convince you to give money to the local administration, or, you know, whatever the motivation was. Uh, it was a show of power. And they had the ability to do some pretty incredible things. So that even Pharaoh would say, well, that's not a big deal. I mean, we can do that. But do you remember there was a point at which those magicians backed up and said, we cannot do this. I forget which miracle it was, but it was one of those plagues where they back up and say, this can only be the finger of God. And so you see there that there's this recognition, even in that ancient world, that yeah, there's some things that anybody could pull off, but there are some things that only God can do. And Moses was demonstrating that. Same thing maybe happens again in the New Testament. I was thinking of Simon the Sorcerer. Remember that event? Where he recognized, hey, I can do a lot. People pay him a lot of money to do quite a bit. But I can't do what that Holy Spirit is giving these people to do. Please, here's some money. Can you give me the Holy Spirit? And you remember how that played out. <laughs> yeah. But it's that same thing where sometimes the, uh, the conflict is a recognition of real, raw power that is God's against these different forms of forces or power that we have today. And you live in a world full of forces and power. Uh, and, and it's tempting to think that, wow, because we have all these forces at our disposal, we must be really powerful. And then it takes one snowstorm to realize an entire city can be shut down <laughs> by forces that are well outside our control. Was that first bell or second bell? That means we got to pray and get ready for worship. Well, thank you for your thoughts. I hope that at least gets things stirring in your own mind. And as you go back through scripture, uh, you'll start to see the, uh, the hand of God, not only in what you read here, but then take that step back and recognize what he's even doing today in the large world uh, in order to draw the world back to himself. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for a chance to jump into your word. I pray that if there's anything said or uh, shared today that is not from you, that you'll sweep it away, swiftly away. But whatever is from you and is meant to stay and is from uh, you as our God and our teacher, may it sink deeply into our hearts and minds and be put into practice this week. We ask that you bless the reading of your word and prepare us now as we go into this time to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.